And in doing so, I got myself in an awful lot of trouble and being in and out of juvenile detention centers for two or three years, finally, they, they, they decided, you know, we can't help you. Your parents can't help you. The psychiatric hospital can't help you. You know, you're going to go to jail for two years until you're 18. Then hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll fix yourself by then you'll learn your lesson. Uh, or, um, they give you an option of this, this placement in Massachusetts. And I looked at the placement, it had pools. I'm like, send me to Massachusetts. So I got out to Massachusetts and I found that it wasn't like the brochures. <laughs> it's very hard. Uh, and I said, man, I'd rather be in jail. So I broke out. <laughs> I escaped and they, they caught me about three hours up the street in New York City. And then they, they shipped me back there. My time got extended. So I wound up staying in this place instead of for 11 months. I stayed there for three and a half years. I was 19 and a half years old when I was finally able to walk out of there free. to Dads and Deadlifts podcast with me, your host, Rish. This podcast is to raise awareness around the social stigma of the word man up. Research has shown men are less likely to seek help for trauma, abuse, neglect, addictions, and mental illness because they will be perceived as weak. Research had directly or indirectly linked these problems to the social and cultural perceptions of the word man up. It's time to start a conversation and redefine this word man up. Each week, you will be hearing from men and women all around the world who survived emotional abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence, and addictions, and how they came out on the other side with triumph to begin a new chapter. You will also hear from experts and coaches all around the globe on matters like brain health, psychology of men and women, holistic healing, fitness, and last but not least, what it takes to be a man, overcoming the social stigma and expectations, and tap into your individual unique authenticity and vulnerability. Thank you for joining me in this mission to serve men around the world and letting them know they are not alone in this. Welcome to another episode of Dads and Deadlifts with me, your host, Rish. Today's guest is very special because I actually saw him on several commercials and I live in Michigan. So of course our local news channel, but then really interestingly, I bumped onto him, into him like one of the Tony Robbins challenge on Facebook. And we both are big fan of Tony Robbins. And then I had to look him up and I had to invite him to share his life story, which, which is an inspiration and which will be an inspiration for all of us and our next generation. And I'm so glad he took some time off from his busy schedule. And uh, let's welcome Joe Zago to Dads and Deadlifts. Morning, Joe. Morning. How are you? Good. Did I uh, butcher your last name or did I say it right? Zago Zago, tomato, tomato. Zago. <laughs> <Okay>. Zago. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about uh, who you are right now. And then we'll, of course, uh, backtrack your story. Uh, well, I'm a 45-year-old CEO of the Carpet Guys. It's a local Michigan company that I started in a basement 10 years ago. Uh, we've uh, grown substantially uh, from nothing uh, with no money to start up. I mean, we literally started with nothing, just uh, ideas and going door to door. Uh, in fact, I didn't even have a driver's license when I started the business. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, about uh, 
three years into the business, I had a child. He was my, for my first son and he's my only child. And, um, you know, life, life changed, you know, I mean, it, I really wanted to, uh, I wanted to create something that I knew that I could, I could count on that my family could count on. And, um, and so the, the business, we scaled it. Uh, we, we got it to the point where, uh, uh, last year's, I think, gross sales were about $25 million in sales. The previous three years, there were about $20 million in sales. And again, we started it from nothing um, with, you know, literally I had nothing. I mean, in 2009, uh, the economy was tanked. Uh, and on top of it, I made a really dumb choice. And I drove after I had three drinks in my system and I got a DUI. And uh, my license got taken from me. So I lost my job. Uh, my my Once I lost the job, my house got taken from me because I couldn't, you know, pay for the house. There was no places that were going to take me, uh, you know, as far as um, doing what I was what I was good at, which was uh, in-home sales of uh, carpet and flooring. And, um, you know, so I, I, I was really limited with, uh, with, you know, with, with my resources at that moment. Um, but uh, luckily, we were able to, to make something out of nothing. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, like to make something out of nothing, but with sheer will and hard work, that's what you did. Because I, I heard your other interviews and I, you know, like everyone knows you, this, the face of carpet guys, and we all see you uh, on commercials, on TV, until I started listening to your interviews. And of course, then I read your uh, introduction on the Tony Robbins New World New We Challenge, which actually is starting today. Uh, so I'm very excited. And tell us about, okay, so let's let's step back a little bit now that people know that who you are now, and the business that you've built and how you are revered by your staff and how you're respected by your uh, leadership team in your company and what are the steps you're taking to get, basically transferring the same legacy to your employees. And I saw all this on on, on uh, different news channel that you give interviews to. I think so, it all starts with your, your general character. Um, and I'll say that for the majority of my life, um, probably until I was in my early 30s, I was not your ideal citizen uh, as a as a as a teenager. I mean, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I mean, if if, if you've got time, I mean, I'll share. <laughs> Absolutely, please. I, I yes. My uh my my upbringing. Uh, I grew up in Sterling Heights, Michigan, which is a suburb of of Detroit. Um, the neighborhood that I grew up in uh, was. Um, I'm American. My dad's Italian, but you know, born here in the U.S. My mom's American. Um, my street that I grew up on, I was probably one of maybe four or five American families. Um, the rest of them, uh, we have a very large population of, of people that came from other areas in the world, obviously. Uh, in my neighborhood, I had a lot of uh, the Arabic uh, population, a lot of uh, Eastern European, whether Yugoslavian or Albanian or, uh, or what have you, a lot of, uh, and, and uh, a lot of Asian. And being, uh, being, not in the majority, um, I always felt that I wanted to fit in. Um, my parents were both very, very good people. Uh, they both taught in the public school system. My mom taught visually impaired students, uh, children that were blind at the high school level. Uh, my father taught business, math, and accounting and was also a swim coach. And so, you know, between what they did at school and then correcting papers after school, they didn't really have a whole lot of time for me after school because they were doing correcting papers for the next four hours or, you know, or doing, you know, one of their extracurricular activities they did after, after work. And so my, and I think it was pretty regular, pretty normal in my neighborhood. We kind of grew up in the street. We grew up with, with each other, with the, with the, the kids in the neighborhood. And I felt that I didn't fit in. And by not fitting in, 
I wanted to somehow um, get the attention of these groups. Like a lot of the Chaldean kids all stuck together. A lot of the Albanian kids all stuck together. A lot of the Yugoslavian or Macedonian or whatever kids all stuck together. And, uh, you know, I, there was no real group for me. And so I wanted to fit in. And my, my uh, neighbors uh, uh, were Yugoslavian and I always wanted to be, you know, one of them <laughs> at six, six to 10 years old, you know, and, and, um, and a lot of those kids that I grew up with weren't really supervised by their parents either. And so, you know, we started smoking at a very young age. Uh, we were shoplifting, you know, and I always wanted to, in order to fit in, you know, I wanted to be the, the kid that had the biggest balls to, excuse my French, I wanted to have the, the courage to, to steal the biggest thing from the store or, or uh, do something the craziest because I always wanted them to say, man, Zago's crazy, man, we like him. And that was my joy. That was my or That was that's where I felt strong was where, you know, people thought, man, this guy's nuts, man. He's got some real courage. And um, and I never really felt in, even though like I always got that kind of recognition from my peers growing up all the way through till my mid teens. Um, I remember a couple couple times in my life where uh, when I was really young, I was um, there was a kid who lived around the corner from me. And when I would ride my bike around the block. He, he never wanted me to pass by his house. So he'd run out of his garage and push me off my bike. And I was probably about seven or eight years old. And um, I always felt that if I got these other kids to like me, I'd have enough courage to go around the block with these kids because he wouldn't, he couldn't push all of us off our, off our bikes. And so we did. And it was kind of like a snub in this kid's face. So then one day I tried to ride my bike around the block by myself and he came after me and I pedaled away and I got to the corner and he cut up to me and, he, and him and his friends, they spit on me. And they, they're, they, and, um, and, you know, they, I, I felt that I needed to have the protection of those other kids. You know, I needed to be like, almost like in a gang of these kids in order to feel safe. Mm. And um, so, so that's, you know, I, I, I grew up with some insecurities, you know, um, um, and I, I think when, when I became a teenager, I, I, I became really good at baseball, but then when it wasn't baseball season, it was always my friend season, you know, it was always, you know, and um, so I, I think in my teenage years, I was, I was, I became very defiant uh, towards authority. I became very, um, because my friends were, you know, and, you know, the, I, I was very influenced by the music I listened to. I listened to a lot of gangster rap and stuff growing up easy and NWA and all that. Right. And then, um, and then the movie colors came out and that it was a heavy influence on a lot of the kids in my high school that I, that I got into, you know, what happens was it, you know, the Albanian kids were wearing red, the Eagles were wearing blue, the Chaldeans were wearing yellow and the Italians were wearing green. And, <laughs> and, and, and it began, and there were, we literally had gang squad at, at our school at the, you know, in the, in the suburbs where, you know, where it's safe, you'd think, you know, and it, it was, it was horrible. I mean, there were shootings and stuff. It was crazy. Um, but I got, I got in a lot of trouble. Cause again, I always wanted to be the one that stood out the crazy one. And I wound up uh, getting a few trips to the Macomb County Youth Home. I was in and out of juvie several times um, and nobody could understand it because my parents were such well-respected people. They were good people, um, but they didn't give me the time that I needed. Um, so I sought that attention outside of the home and, 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 and being that I didn't fit in, I wanted to fit in. I had to go way above and beyond to try to feel accepted. And in doing so, I got myself in an awful lot of trouble and being in and out of juvenile detention centers for two or three years, finally, they, they, they decided, you know, we can't help you. Your parents can't help you. The psychiatric hospital can't help you. You know, you're going to go to jail for two years until you're 18. Then hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll fix yourself by then you'll learn your lesson. Uh, or um, they give you an option of this, this placement in Massachusetts. And 
I looked at the placement, it had pools. I'm like, send me to Massachusetts. So I got out to Massachusetts and I found that it wasn't like the brochures. <laughs> it was very hard. Uh, and I said, man, I'd rather be in jail. So I broke out. <laughs> I escaped and they, they caught me about three hours up the street in New York City and then they, they shipped me back there. My time got extended. So I wound up staying in this place instead of for 11 months, I stayed there for three and a half years. I was 19 and a half years old when I was finally able to walk out of there free. And I lived in uh, Massachusetts at the time because uh, when I first got out of the school, uh, my, my parents uh, did the tough love thing with me. They wanted me to either go back and complete the program or I couldn't have a relationship with them. And I wasn't going back. And so I, I didn't have my, my family in my life. Um, it was just me. And when I got out of there, I got out of there with, I want to say $6 in my pocket uh, that I was, I, that I had, uh, that they gave me, you know, when I left the school and I, and I walked, I, I want to say it was like 17 or 18 miles to a, a town called Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I, first thing I did is I went to um, the police station who then set me up with the American Red Cross. The Red Cross got me a room for three nights at this place called the Fitch's Motel. It was basically a homeless shelter. Um, and I took that, that, that six or $8, I don't remember what it was, but six or eight bucks that I had. And I went to the Salvation Army that was in the parking lot behind the Fitch's Motel. And I bought a collared shirt. I bought some slacks. Uh, and I was able to cut a deal to get some shoes and if, on an IOU that if I came back in three days and gave them an extra $4, I can get the pair of dress shoes with it. And I wore that, that outfit for a week because <laughs> that same day I was able to, I went out and got three jobs. So at 19 years old, I, I got a job at the Pittsfield Movie uh, Cinema. Chi-Chi's restaurant and the big Y grocery store. And I worked three jobs um, because I didn't, you know, I was, I was homeless. You know, that was the first time I was ever homeless really. And I was homeless twice in my life. You know, the other time was when I was 35. Um, but I knew that what that taught me was that, you know, doing whatever it takes, you know, no matter what, you know, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, I, I work nine to five and I can't make Ed's meat. Well, shit, get a second nine to five, you know, work from seven to midnight, you know, whatever it takes. And that's what I had to do because it was do or die. I remember when I, I, when I was in Pittsfield, I wound up catching pneumonia and I was in the hospital. And uh, the first thing I wanted to do was call my mom and the hospital. First, I called my mom. My mom says, if you want to talk to me, go back to school and she hung up the phone on me. So the hospital called my parents and they said, you know, your son's in the hospital with pneumonia. You know, you should talk to him. So my mom gets on the phone. And first thing she says, talking to you is not going to make your pneumonia go away. When you, when you're healed, go back to school. If you want to have a relationship, she hung up the phone. And I realized at that moment, my parents loved me, but they were doing the tough love thing with me. You know, they weren't enabling me or coming to my rescue and saving me like they did every time in the past that, that just, you know, every time I was in the youth home, they got me out of jail because they, their reputation saved me or whatever it may be. At that moment, I was naked, basically. I was afraid. I was alone. I knew I didn't have anybody. The only person I could really talk to was my sister. I'd call her on the 800 number she had at her, at her work because I didn't have any money to call on the payphone, but there was an 800 number that I could call and they would transfer me to my sister. And her and my aunt were my support system, you know, not financially, just emotionally. And uh, I worked those three jobs. Um, and I think within, uh, I was able to get an, ex an extra five days on the Fitch's Motel. And so within a week, I was able to get the boss at the movie theater to advance me uh, $150 of my paycheck that I, that I worked for. It just hasn't been through payroll yet. And uh, I was able to get a room at a boarding house where I, you know, it was basically a house that had eight different units and basically bedrooms and you had a shared shower and a shared kitchen. And so that was my first, you know, apartment, basically. It was a little, you know, eight by 12 room inside this, uh, this house, uh, 831 North Street, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I, I was there for a little bit. 
Um, and then uh, my grandfather in Michigan got real sick and we thought he was going to die. And my, my dad actually called me and says, if you're able to make it back to Michigan, you know, you might want to, you might want to come, you know, don't tell mom I, I called you. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wound up back in Michigan. I took an Amtrak and uh, I went to the hospital. My mom ignored me. My dad is about four o'clock in the morning. We get in the elevator. Uh, I was down in the, in the cafeteria at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak and uh, get in the elevator and uh, go up one floor and my mom and dad are there. The door opens. My dad gets on. He says, Penny, come with me. And my mom says, no, I'll catch the next elevator. He pulls her on the elevator and says, this is your son. This is your mom. Give each other a hug. Time is short. Life is precious. Quit fucking around. And uh, that was his message. And, and my mom and I talked for the first time in a long time that day. And um, they weren't going to enable me anymore, but the relationship was reestablishing, you know, finally getting to, you know, become friends with my parents again. So anyways, I was uh, 19. My, uh, my aunt let me live with her in Clinton Township in her basement. And I, I transferred my Chi-Chi's job from the Chi-Chi's in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, the one at Lakeside in Sterling Heights. And I was a host over there. And uh, I wasn't making much money. You know, the, the cost of living in Massachusetts or in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, not Boston, the other side of the state, completely different, was, uh, was a lot different than it was in, in Sterling Heights in Clinton Township where my aunt lived. And so um, I, I wound up, I was working there and I wound up fooling around with one of the girls that I worked with and we both got fired because, you know, you're, we weren't supposed to mess around with girls that we work with. And so now I'm out of a job and uh, I, I, I had a place to live though. So uh, I had a friend of mine that had a staffing agency or my friend's mom had a staffing agency and she got me different jobs working at factories doing, you know, kind of brainless work, you know, just driving around a forklift or whatever it may be. And it wasn't really me. I was always a people person. I liked being a host at the restaurant. I liked working at the grocery store. I liked working in the movie theater um, because I was interacting with people. I was always somebody that liked to talk to people. And finally, uh, about a week or two went by and I didn't have a job after a, a little while because of these jobs that, you know, I'd get fired or, you know, quit or whatever it may be. My aunt finally told me, she says, Joey, if you don't have a steady job, then, then you're going to have to find another place to live. I'm not going to have a bum living in my basement. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> she's serious. And so I grabbed the newspaper. And when I grabbed the newspaper, I started going through the, the, the job opportunities. And there were two jobs that actually stuck out to me. One was at Jack's Car Wash on Telegraph, and it was for $10 an hour. And I'm figuring, okay, $10 an hour cash. I can make some cash. I'll make tips. I'll meet a ton of pretty girls. I'll get free car washes. All right. And uh, the other one, and I just circled the second job just as a backup, just to, just to get my aunt off my back, was shampooing carpets for, for $400 a week. And so I go to Jack's because that's the one I really wanted. And I didn't get the car wash job because somebody else already got it. So now I had to go over to Southfield and, and try this, uh, this job shampooing rugs for $400 a week. And so <laughs> I get there and the guy who was interviewing me was the owner of the company. He was 24 years old at the time and I was 19. And uh, he had this gold nugget bracelet on. He had this Rolex watch on. He was 24. And he, and he had this, these two kids running around the office. He goes, that's all right. I'm the boss. They could do what they want. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's got it going on. He's 24 years old. Man, this guy's got, he's got a Lincoln Mark 8, Mark 8 out in the parking lot. And he's faster than my car. I was like, holy crap, man, this guy. And he's telling me that he was homeless when he was 19, just five years prior. And he was becoming very successful and I was like, how are you doing this? How do you, how do you get into shampooing rugs? He says, come back tomorrow. I'll tell you all about it. So he wouldn't give me any answers. So he, he had my mind wandering. I'm excited. And so the next day I go there and he's telling me this idea about, 
you know, when we shampoo these rugs, we use this special machine and, and, and it's affordable for people. So their carpet looks like hell. And then by the time you're done with it, it looks beautiful. And everybody wants to buy the machine, but only about one in five people can afford it. I'm like, okay. And so, so, but he goes, here's the good thing. He goes, if you do it 15 times a week, do the math. He says, if you show it 15 times a week and one in five people buy it, that means three times a week, people, someone's going to buy it, want to buy the machine and going to buy the machine from you. And if they buy the machine from you, you get commission. So I said, so I don't have to make just $400 a week. He goes, yeah, if you don't sell anything all week, you still make $400. But if you go through it and you sell two a week, you make $500 because you get the, the 400 or the commission, whichever is greater of the two. He goes, now do the math. He goes, if you sell fifth, three times a week, how much do you make? I go, I go, well, because you made $250 on a sale. And I said, well, would you get $400 or would you get $750? I said, $750. He goes, now we're talking. He goes, now if you get good at something, then you might sell four a week. And what did you make then? And I said, then I made a thousand bucks. He goes, and what your parents make as teachers? I said about 45,000. He says, geez, you'll be making more money than your parents. All you got to do is sell four a week. And I'm, so now I'm wired, fired, inspired, and so excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to show them because, you know, for a long time, I would, they were telling me, you can't make money doing this. You can't make money doing that. Oh, don't be stupid. Da, 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 da. But my oppositional tendencies, you know, my, my rebellious part of my life that says, don't listen to authority, you know, never wanted anybody to be right. So when I went home and told my aunt and my aunt told my dad and my dad told my mom and my, you know, everyone told everybody and they're like, you're going to, you're going to sell Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door. I said, no, I'm shampooing rugs, but the thing's so great. You're going to want to buy it. Trust me. And so I took it home. I showed them and my dad bought one from me. <laughs> and so he goes, yeah, but you'll never make money doing it. And um, so I, so I, just being oppositional, I stuck it out because I hated that job. It sucked. I mean, literally we're, you know, after the first couple of weeks where they give you appointments, you're going door to door. And you're literally knocking on doors, knocking doors in the summertime when you're teenagers, it's fun, you know, but in the wintertime when it's, you know, 10 degrees outside and you have to wear these $40 Giorgio Bertini dress shoes and, you know, and you're going through the snow and your hands are turning white from, you know, the knuckles on the, on the, on the, on the, the aluminum doors. It was no fun. Um, but I never wanted anybody to tell me, I told you so, you know, I didn't want them to be right. And so I was stubborn and I was oppositional and I just, and I just did it to prove them wrong. And thank God I did you know, because that taught me, I got, that was my first experience doing sales. You know, I mean, as a host at a restaurant, I sold myself because I wanted them to like me, you know, and, and, and when I was you know, a caddy, you know, carrying golf clubs, you know, before I got shipped off to boarding school, before all the juvenile stuff, you know, I sold myself because of the more they liked me, the bigger the tip I got at the, at the golf course. So and this is just selling myself again, then selling the product. And so I got really good at doing this. And, and then by the time I was 23 years old, um, they awarded me a franchise, basically. They said, you can have your own, your own office. And they taught me how to run the business. And so at 23 years old, I was my first business owner. And I, I failed miserably, you know, because I, I, I got executive-itis. I got, you know, all right, guys, get to work, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I learned real quick the hard way that, that I had to, if I was going to make that business work, I had to lead by example and do it myself. And I didn't do it. And so I wound up, I wound up failing and, uh, you know, I was out of business in just a few months. And, uh, so I went back and worked for somebody else selling, you know, for another Kirby office again. And I, I did really well selling. I just didn't have the business sense or the maturity level at that time to do what it takes to, to operate, operate a business. Uh, so anyways, uh, I did that for a little while and then I got recruited into to selling cars and I liked that. That was a lot of fun. I was really good at it. Um, and I realized that sales is my niche, you know, that's, that's something I'm good at. I'm good at, um, listening to a customer, talking to a customer, getting on their level, regardless of, you know, where they're at, making a friend with them. And then, and then 
selling genuinely based on what I believe is, is, is good. And um, a few years later, I remember seeing an ad on TV for Empire Today. And I said, Empire, how do I know that? And I remember that, I remember the 588, 2300, their jingle. I remember that because when I was at that boarding school in Massachusetts, after I ran away, they sent me to Chicago for six months. And during that time that I was in Chicago, those, those commercials were constantly on because that's where Empire was based out of. So when I saw the commercial in Michigan, I was like, man, that'd be a great company to work for. I was out of a job. I worked at Sears selling refrigerators and then they, they switched something over and so I was out of a job again. And so I started working at Empire Today. And first they didn't want me because I had no carpet experience. I had curvy experience. I know what I know how to make a, a carpet last from the vacuum cleaner, but I had no, no idea what, what about carpet. And uh, I was persistent though. And uh, fi finally I went to the place and I said, look, if you're not gonna interview me through email or through whatever, then, then I'll just come here and, and tell you about myself. And the guy says, you know what? I like your persistence. I wish my sales people were half as persistent as you. Come on in, we'll talk. And he gave me a job. And uh, I started selling uh, selling at Empire Today. I was there for two or three years. The, by my second year, I was their top salesperson in Michigan. By the third year, I was in the top five in the United States. And I just did really, really well. And uh, I think my fourth or fifth year, every year they gave away a Rolex watch if you if you sold over a million dollars for them. And I got it. And I, I but the third year that I was winning it, there was a, a discrepancy over the qualifications of winning it. And either way, that my peers all got it, and I sold more than them, and I didn't get it. And uh, I, I felt really disturbed by that, so I left. And then I went and sold basement waterproofing, but I hated selling basement waterproofing because it wasn't the fun sale; it was a, a desperation sale. Um, and then, uh, and then um, I, I, I was going. I was in a relationship. I was with a girl for three years, and we were engaged. Uh, she was Albanian Muslim, and I was I'm, I'm Italian American, you know, uh, Christian, and. Um, during our time of our relationship, she got pregnant and uh, we were all about having a family together. But at that time in my life, I was still pretty crazy. You know, I was drinking an awful lot. I'd be hanging out with my friends, doing a bunch of dumb shit. And um, I think that she didn't feel secure with me being around, being a dad, you know, like that she thought that she'd wind up being a single mom if she wound up having her baby. And even though we were all about it, we were engaged, you know, uh, her family disowned her, you know, because she broke it to them that, that she was with me and, you know, I was not Muslim and, you know, and I wasn't Albanian and um, her family, her brother, her dad, you know, they, they wouldn't talk to her at all. Her mom would talk to her, but she would sneak to talk to her. And so with the pressure that she was given from her family, as well as the fear of, of me not being around possibly, uh, she decided she was going to abort our child. And that killed me. That I talked, I tried every sales technique I could to talk her into keeping it, and I couldn't. And I remember that that day, it was June 6, 2006, of all dates, 666, uh, when she, uh, we, we walked into the abortion clinic, and I was trying to talk her in, talk her out of it the entire time. And uh, she went through with it, and I couldn't look at her the same. We, we, our relationship absolutely failed at that point. You know, I mean, for the next two weeks, I just, I was drunk every day. You know, I was, I was miserable. You know, and uh, she, you know, we, we broke up and she uh, moved back to Chicago where her family was originally from. And I was here and I was depressed. Um, I was using alcohol uh, every day, you know, drinking a lot. Uh, I was at the nightclubs, you know, trying to fill my void by meeting new girls and doing everything I could. And uh, then I became a nightclub promoter, which made me feel high again because I felt like I was important because I could get all the pretty girls past the line. I, you know, I mean, I was 
getting laid more than I had the right to. I mean, I was, I was, you know, this bar star and, um, my life was a train wreck, you know, and I wound up getting a DUI didn't phase me. I just did what I had to do to please the court, but I wasn't stopping drinking at all. Um, my friends were doing cocaine and a lot of other drugs and I experimented with that stuff as well. And uh, my life was just a total train wreck. It was out of control. I quit the job at the waterproofing place and I was living off my credit cards for about three or four months. And, uh, finally the, I was at Cedar point for my friend's birthday and the credit card company, uh, I swiped my card to buy a pack of cigarettes cause I used to smoke back then. And the card became, was declined. And, uh, so I was like, Oh, so I called the credit card company and said, we're cutting you off. And I was, all my credit cards were maxed out. My, my mortgage was three months behind. So I was in, you know, facing foreclosure and there was this job opportunity in Arizona for express flooring. Um, and they were trying to recruit me. I said, I'm not going to Arizona. Who the hell wants to live in a desert? I don't know anybody out there. And I've never been to Arizona at the time. And uh, finally, I was, I was desperate. I said, oh, is that job still open? They said, yeah, come on out. I said, I have no money. I can't even get there. So I borrowed $500 from my dad to go across the country so I could take this job. And uh, I loved it. I, I never I had no idea that Phoenix was so great. It was new and clean. There was a, wasn't a pothole or not even a dent in the road. The girls were beautiful, you know, and the, this never cloudy. I'm like, man, this is great. And so I lived out there and I started selling carpet and flooring again. And I did really, really well. And, but I was bringing my habits, my insecurities and my depression with me as well. You know, even though I ran away from everything here and started over fresh over there, um, I got to plug this computer and it looks like it's going to die here. Hold on a second. No problem. Um, so I, I, I brought my bag of shit with me and, um, and so I, I immediately got involved in the bar nightclubs over there, even though I was working this, this great sales job, the sales job was good. I was making a couple grand a week. I mean, I was, I went from about to lose everything, you know, to making a hundred thousand dollar year income like that. And, um, but I was still drinking a lot and I was partying every day and I, be, I wanted to become popular again. I wanted to fit in again. All the, all of my demons were there with me. And uh, so, you know, I, and I, I messed around with, with, you know, the booze a lot. I, I sniffed cocaine with some people, the nightclub promoters and what have you, and, you know, met a bunch of girls and, and, and um, was just living this party life. While during the daytime, I was living this professional life, you know, going to customers' homes, half hungover half the time, but selling them carpet and flooring and uh, making a good, good living doing it. Well, eventually, about a year and a half later, um, I got pulled over one night and well, I was, I was driving, um, <clears throat> driving to my apartment and, uh, I was doing about 80 miles an hour. It was a 55 mile per hour zone. A cop comes roaring down the entrance ramp, puts his lights on. I pull over. And as I pull over, he goes around me and pulls somebody else over. I was like, Oh my God, I was just saved because I had probably 12 drinks in my system. I was way over the limit. The laws in Arizona are 10 times stricter on drunk driving than they are in Michigan. And they had tent city and all the same. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to jail. And I was like, Whoa. Man, I'm not doing that again. So the next day I went out again and I was careful. I only had three drinks that night, a shot and two, two mixed drinks over the course of about two and a half hours or so. And then I drank a water and then I was driving back in the same exact spot that I almost got pulled over the night before I was doing 60 
And it was 55 and a cop comes roaring down and pulls me over. I'm like, ah, okay, well, what's he got me for? Five over? That's stupid. I got a Michigan plate. That's probably why he's messing with me. And uh, he asked me if I had anything to drink. And I told him, I said, I had three drinks earlier, but I haven't drank anything since. He goes, okay, well, since you admitted that, I appreciate your honesty. Come out of the car. You got to do a field sobriety test. I do all my tests. He goes, well, you look fine. Just need to blow in this real quick and I'll send you on your way. And I blew exactly 0.08. And that's when the log was changed from 0.10 to 0.08. And uh, he goes, well, blowing it again one more time. He goes, if you're, if you're under, I think you're fine. But if you're an 08, I have to arrest you. And I'm like, are you serious? And I blew again. It was exactly 0.08. He goes, you got to get out of the car. I go, but I'm not drunk. He goes, according to this machine, you are. And I said, but you saw me doing my test. And he goes, he goes, you can't convince me otherwise. He goes, we're on camera. You blew a 0.08. If I don't arrest you, then I'm liable and I can lose my job. So he took me to jail, took my fingerprints, took my picture and sent me out the back door. <laughs> it didn't even keep me overnight. But it was my second DUI in five years. And by, by law, my license had to be revoked, you know, not just suspended. It had to be revoked because I had two within seven year period of time. And then so two within five years, your license is revoked. So my license got revoked. And um, I told my boss about it. And he says, well, you can't drive. You know, I say, he goes, how are you going to go to customers' houses? He goes, you got to hire a driver. So my, my roommate's girlfriend was out of, out of work. I said, well, why don't you drive me around? You know, I said, I'll, I'll pay you $500 a week. And after about three days, she goes, 500 is not enough because you're driving from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. seven days a week. So I said, how about a thousand? So I paid her a thousand dollars a week and she drove me around. And one day she got sick. So all of my customers had to cancel. My boss was really upset with me because I was always reliable, but if she wasn't, you know, and so eventually it just got to the point where like between paying drivers and trying to pay my mortgage, getting my house out of foreclosure in Michigan, paying my rent, paying my car note, my insurance, my cell phone bill and all my stupid entertainment fun stuff, I couldn't hack it. And uh, it was time for me to go to court and the court says, you know, that it's a mandatory 30 days in jail. And uh, so I, I said, well, can I serve it in Michigan? You know, and that way your tax taxpayers don't have to pay for it. They said, sure. So I, I go back to Michigan. And uh, I, so I, my, my, I quit my job in Arizona. I came back to Michigan. Uh, my house was gone. There's no way I could, I could pay for it. So I uh, moved in with my buddies and uh, they, uh, they agreed because the Michigan jails were so crowded that they would just put me on house arrest tether instead of actually going to jail. So I was like, I get to skip jail, but I had to wear an ankle tether on my, on my ankle. Mm. It didn't sense check me for alcohol, but it checked me for my location. So from nine o'clock at night until seven in the morning, I had to be at this house where my, where I made my registered address. And it was a house that was actually in foreclosure also, but it had six months before the sheriff was going to kick him out. And so we're squatting in this house, basically. It wasn't, it was a house that they were renting and the landlord wasn't paying the mortgage. So it went to foreclosure is in 2009. And we're basically just, you know, playing the game with the court system saying, oh, well, you got to kick us out, you know, and there's a process. And so we were squatting in this house for six months in the basement and then the heat got shut off. So from October until January, we had no heat and it's freezing in Michigan during those months. And so we had electricity. So we got a whole bunch of space heaters and stacked them around the house. And to make money, we were throwing parties. I mean, I, I knew the nightclub industry really well. I knew a ton of DJs from across the country. And I was able to get a lot of these DJs to play after hours in this basement of this house, you know, for a thousand dollars or so. So all we had to do is charge $20 cover and get 50 people and then boom, we broke even. And that's what we did. So we had an after hours inside this basement of this house in St. Clair Shores that we were squatting in with no heat. And we'd put 120 people, 150 people inside this basement of this house. And we'd have these banging rave parties, you know, in this neighborhood, you know. And, and so I did that for like three or four days. And it was a blast. I mean, I was drunk every day and there was drugs everywhere. And there was people doing crazy shit. And, 
but at 35 years old, my life was so out of control. I didn't even realize it was out of control because that's what I was surrounded by my, my peers. And it was just nuts. And, uh, the wake up call for me was the day before the Super Bowl uh, in, in 2010. Um, there was a, uh, we had a party. We had, I don't know, probably it was maybe 40 or 50 people that were upstairs and another 50 or 60 people that were downstairs, probably about 100 people. I mean, there's a lot of people in this house. I mean, we had bouncers and okay, I mean, we had the whole thing. We had lasers and DJ. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, and I need, I, I ran out of cigarettes and I was on my house arrest tether, so I couldn't leave the house. And so I was asking people, if I gave you 10 bucks, would you go buy a pack of cigarettes for me and just keep the change? And nobody would do it. And I said, how about 20? Nobody would do it. They said, no, I've been drinking. I was like, man, you guys are a bunch of wimps, man. It's a mile up the street. Well, this is what got me in trouble the, fir the first two times is that, that ego, you know? And so I said, screw you guys. I took the, I was drunk. I took the tether off my ankle. You know, so now this thing's, you know, alerting the house arrest services that the tether's broken. And, and uh, I, I go to, I, for, well, first I, I didn't have a car. My car was repossessed by them. Um, there was a girl that was sleeping on the floor. She probably had too much to drink or something. And I, next to her was her purse. So I went through her purse and I found her car keys. I mean, this, this, is, this sounds horrible. I'm just, I mean, I, I literally stole this girl's car. And I'm going down the street with the tether off my ankle hitting the car alarm button to find this girl's car. There's a Jeep with the lights blinking down the street. That's her car. I get in the car. I drive to 7-Eleven, wasted off my butt, get a pack of smokes, come back, go over a curb. I see a car behind me. I'm like, oh my God, that's probably a cop. And then it goes around me. I'm like, it wasn't a cop. I get to the house. Everyone's still partying. I put the keys back in this girl's purse. She's still in the same position she was. Like, to this day, I don't even know who this girl was. And mind you, this is only 11 years ago. I was 35 years old. And and when I sobered up at four or five in the clock in the morning and there was people that I didn't even know sleeping on the floor, you know, pile of cocaine on the table, there was drugs everywhere, there was booze everywhere, the floors were destroyed from people. I mean, it was just destroyed, this house, it was just a mess. And um, I started looking around and I said, you know what, if that car behind me last night was a cop that saw me go over the curb, that would have been three DUIs in six years. Not to mention, I was driving this girl's car that wasn't mine. I would have got caught with a stolen vehicle I would have got three DUIs in no time. I, I clearly took the tether off my ankle intentionally, even though I called house arrest services that it broke off in my sleep. I said, you know, I would have gone to prison for two to five years, state prison. And no judge is going to feel sorry for this kid. I'm not a kid anymore. I'm 35 years old. My life was so out of control, more out of control at 35 than it was 20 years prior when I was a teenager in and out of juvenile detention system. And I asked myself, I said, of all these people that are sleeping on the floor here, partying in the basement, you know, telling me, oh man, you're awesome. You're so cool, man. Giving me all this love. How many of these people would have came up an hour and a half up the street to Jackson prison to come visit me? And I'm looking around at every one of them, not a single person. And I thought, I kept that thought in my mind for the next 24 hours because the next day we were having a Super Bowl party and the Super Bowl party started early because the game, you know, it wasn't an after hours. It was all day, all night. And so I, I didn't drink that day at all. And I stayed sober and it was cool for the first two or three hours, but by around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, when everyone was completely demolished, repeating themselves five times over, spitting on my face while they're talking to me, telling me, oh, you're the coolest guy around and give me hugs. And I'm just getting disgusted by everybody. And at that moment, I said, if I was in prison right now, none of these people would have came to visit me. What would I be doing at this exact moment if I got arrested 24 hours ago or 15 hours ago? I said, I'd be in a, on a, in a cold jail cell on my knees, praying to God, saying, God, I'm so sorry. I know I haven't talked to you for a couple of years since the last time I was in trouble and needed your help. You know, 
And I promised I would do things differently, but this time I'm serious. Please get me through this. You know, I'd be praying to get county time or, or work release or whatever it may be. And um, at that moment, I kicked everybody out of that house. It wasn't even my house to kick people out of. I, mean, I was living on an air mattress in the basement of my buddy's foreclosed home. And I kicked everybody out. And I got no, I almost got in a fight with my with my my friend who lived there. And he left too. So here I am in this house all by myself. I've got 26 more days or 27 days left with this alcohol tether. And I wasn't able to leave the house. And um, I started watching, um, I started reflecting on my life at that moment. And I had nothing but silence. Um, I think I threw my through my phone the day before too. So I didn't have any anything except for the TV and the cold red leather couch. <laughs> and um, we had, uh, I started watching YouTube videos and I remember watching um, uh, The Secret uh, and that I, a lot of people that I knew that, that were my bosses or, or people that were influential at some point that I just never listened to them, but I, I knew they had it going on, you know, including the Kirby guy from back then. He, he always said, you know, fill your brain, you know, the people you hang around with, the music you listen to, the, the stuff you put in your ears and your eyes are what's going to determine the direction your life goes. And uh, I was a mess. I mean, I had I was I was at the very bottom. My car was repossessed. My house was repossessed. I had no job. I had no driver's license. I was on a damn tether. I had no nobody would hire me. I mean, I was out of luck, out of options. You know, what resources do I even have left at that point? I had my mind, and I and I filled my mind with different shit than I was used to filling it. After I kicked everybody out of the house, I basically said, I'm you know what? I'm going to put myself in mental prison for two years. I'm going to pretend that I'm in prison. And if I'm in prison, I can't see these people. I can't smoke cigarettes. I can't drink booze. I can't do drugs. I can't go to the club. I can't pick up chicks. I can't do anything except for me. And at that moment, I, so I started filling my brain with positive stuff. I started, and I didn't just watch The Secret. After I watched it the first time, I remember saying, I saw that a couple of years ago. I thought it was a bunch of bullshit then, but you know what? The people that told me to watch it were people that had shit going on in their life. They were doing way better than I was. And I remember it might have been Tony Robbins saying, saying, you know, if you want to, you want, you want to play the game with people at a high, that are playing the game at a higher level than you are. You want to, your association, your proximity to these people is, is key if you want to succeed and grow. And I remember hearing that on an audio book while I was driving 20 years prior selling Kirby vacuum cleaners for, you know, the, the Kirby guy or 15 years prior that time. And so, uh, and so I just, I, I watched the secret over and over again. It was $1. And so I just, I was able to watch it over and over and I pretty much memorized a bunch of it. And then I started watching a bunch of Tony Robbins videos on YouTube and I started watching um, some Les Brown videos and, and Zig Ziglar and um, Tom Hopkins. There's, there's a, a Brian Tracy. There was a whole bunch of them that I just started really watching. And I had nothing else to do. I'm sitting in this empty house. It was freezing cold with five blankets over me watching YouTube videos on the smart TV. And, um, and that was it. I, uh, I, 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 I just put together a plan and I started, what resources do I have? Well, I was good with people. You know, I was good at from, you know, 15 years prior going door to door and knocking on doors and talking people into letting me in their house to show them a vacuum cleaner. I knew carpet because I sold it for Empire and I sold it for that company in Arizona. The economy was tanked. So installers in the area were out of work. So I, I had a, a girl that I met drive me over to this uh, carpet wholesale facility and uh, they had a million dollars of inventory they couldn't get rid of. And I asked them if I could have some samples of their product for free as long as I was able to sell their product. Have at it. You know? So they give me some samples. And I talked to an installer friend of mine that I knew for a lot of years that worked at Empire with me from a few years before. And I said, you know, I don't know if you're working right now, but, but 
if I can sell some jobs, can you put them in? He says, absolutely, Joe, you know, no problem. Just send them my way. You know, I'll take anything I can get right now because the economy was tanked. Nobody was, nobody was working. It was in 09 and uh, 09 or beginning of 10. I think it was 09 still. No, it was 10. It was right after February, February, 2010, I think it was. And uh, anyway, um, I made a, a flyer and I went door to door on that street and that foreclosed, that we were on that foreclosed home. Uh, during the day. And I said, you know, my name's Joe. I used to sell carpet for Empire. I started my own business here in Michigan. And if you're ever in the market for carpet or flooring, you know, here's my information and I'd be love, I'd love to help you. Thanks. And then as I turn around, I remember the, the trick to, to knocking indoors selling Kirby. By the way, <laughs> you know, do you have any carpet that's really ugly right now? I could take a look at and give you a price quote on. And they say, uh, no, or else they say, sure, come on in. And I said, no pressure. The price is good for a whole year. Just keep us in mind. And if you're ever in the market, here's my number. And they, I, so they were disarmed. They felt, hey, why not? So they go inside. I said, oh, yeah, should probably get this replaced. You'll be really happy with the prices we have right now because the economy is so bad. Prices are really cheap. So I create a sense of urgency. And before you know it, I was going up and down this street with had 100 houses on it. I sold seven or eight of them. And I was like, wow, this is good. Now I could do the street, street next door to mine. And I took the money that I was making and I showed this girl that I started seeing. And she just lost her job because the economy was bad. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you can drive me to customers' homes, I can start advertising on Craigslist and MySpace at the time is before Facebook was really big. I can utilize my social media presence um, to get appointments. If you can drive me there, we'll pay all of your bills first because she had a brand new car and a brand new condo and she wasn't able to you know, pay because her, her hours got cut so bad from the, the, the shrinkage of her work needed. Um, I said, you know, we'll pay your bills first and after that we can split the profits. She goes, okay, deal. So next thing you know, she's driving me around. We became boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and so we were together for about a year and that girl was a hustler, man. She was focused. She was driven. She listened to all types of positive stuff, you know, and, and I was barely exposed to it except for the, you know, a little bit. And we just meshed, man. I mean, it was, it was a rock solid relationship for a little while. And, uh, I started advertising on, on social media. So that way, cause I knew I had somebody that could drive me and the phone started ringing. And so she would answer the phone while she's in the driveway of some customer's house while I'm inside trying to sell the carpet. And she'd have this little red Stephen Covey time minder folder and she would, you know, put, you know, put the appointments in and she would just drive me from appointment to appointment. And it got to the point after about three or four weeks that we were selling probably two or three jobs in a day and I had to find more installers. And so that's how I started my business. And it was just, and, and then we started putting money into marketing and, 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 you know, Google AdWords and stuff. And then I hired, had to, uh, train more people to sell because I couldn't do them all this, all the same time. So I was trying to teach the girlfriend, but she wasn't interested. So I had somebody else drive me around and I was training him and he became my first salesperson. And then a couple of more people. And before you know it, that first year, I remember setting the goal, you know, I never made a hundred thousand dollars a year. That was mine up until that point. I, you know, I always made 80,000, 85, 92, you know, and then I would take two or three months off during the summer months and come back to Michigan when I lived in Arizona. And so I never cracked that hundred thousand dollar threshold ever at that point. And I said, what would it take for me to make a hundred thousand a year? I said, well, one third of the money goes towards the carpet. One third of the money goes towards the installer. And one third of the money comes to me. So for me to make a hundred K, I got to sell 300 K. So I said, none of, so, and I remember watching a Stephen Covey or listening to a Stephen Covey audiobook, the seven habits of highly effective people during the period of time when I was in house arrest. And one of the things he said was start with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. What do you, he said, you can start the very, very end of the book 
is your funeral. What do you want people to say about you when you're in your, in your box, you know, when they're coming to pay their respects to you, what do you want the, that conversation to be while you're laying there and you can hear them? What do you want? What do you want to hear them talking about? And he goes, and then, you know, and work backwards. How do you get to that end result that you ultimately desire? And I started thinking, you know, what, what, so I, I worked, I, I didn't go that far ahead, but what I did do is I, I used the end in mind theory where if I want to make a hundred thousand, that's the result that I want to make. And it was April at that time. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to get from zero to a hundred thousand? It's in my pocket. I need to sell 300,000. And I started working the numbers backwards saying, you know, if I, if I can get in front of three customers a day, I'll sell two out of the three. And at the end of the day, if we do this much, you know, then this is what we'll make. And so I said, okay, I, I broke out the numbers. So if I do three leads a day, it'll equal 300 K. And I, I put sticky notes literally those yellow sticky notes. I stuck them on the bathroom mirror. I stuck them inside the fridge on the milk jug. I stuck them on the microwave. I put them on the rear view mirror of my girlfriend's car. I put them on the, on the, on the TV set. So I had to take it off every time I watch TV and put it back on there. It was by the, my toothbrush. It was everywhere. Three leads a day equals 300 K. And I said, this is way far-fetched. There's no way a guy with no driver's license, you know, on probation can't even be, it has to be back in the house no later than 9 PM. You know, there's no way in hell this guy could ever make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I, I, I just kept reading those goals every single day. And I said, as long as I can get in front of three people every day, I'm on the path. And so around the end of November, beginning of December, I started counting to see where we were really at. And at that point we were already at 320 some thousand dollars. And I was like, holy shit, I made over a hundred thousand in seven months. I never made that when I had all my freedom. I was like, this is crazy. This goal thing really works, you know? And, and, and so, so at the end of the year, I, I, I made over a hundred thousand dollars and I had no driver's license. And I was like, Oh, you gotta be shitting me. This is possible. You know, I've got no opportunity. I've got every excuse in the world to fail every excuse in the world. I mean, they're all self-inflicted excuses, but I have every excuse in the world to fail. And I said, man, I said, let's make, let's go real unrealistic here. Let's, let's shoot for a million next year. And so I said, okay, a million dollars, million. I put these sticky notes again, all over the apartment. And this girl was like, she goes, what are you doing? You're trashing my place. Cause I was living in her place. And, um, and sure enough, I mean, we, I think we did 1.6 million that second year, completely unrealistic, way out of, way out of the universe goals. But that was the end that I had in mind. And I worked backwards. What would it take to do that? Well, if I, if I do 10 lead, you know, 10 leads a day, then we'll, we'll get to a million. And so I had to figure out a way how to get, you know, so, so the, 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 the rule is, you know, like if you're looking at the, at a roadmap and you're driving from you're in Michigan. So if you're driving from here to Miami or here to wherever you're, let's say Miami, you got the, you remember those old Rand McNally bolt roadmaps and you used to take yes. a highlighter and, and say, okay, I 75 to this, to this, to this. Well, if you know where your destination is, you can work backwards and see the most direct route to get it. And so I just, same thing, you know, you, and you had benchmarks along the way. So if I make it to Miami, if I got to get there in 24 hours and it's nine o'clock when I leave the house in the morning, that means I have to cross Cincinnati by this time. I have to cross, you know, Knoxville by this time. I have to hit Atlanta, Georgia by this time. I have to get to the Florida state line at this time, Tampa, St. Petersburg at this time, Alligator Alley at this time and boom. So you have key performance indicators of where you should be along the, along the way, these benchmarks. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. So if I'm aiming at a million dollars, I need to be at a quarter million by, 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 you know, this, the end of this quarter, half a million by this period. And, and, and so you start with the goal at the end in mind, and then you work backwards and figure out what, what are the benchmarks? What are the, you know, the checkpoints that you need to be along the way to make sure you're on your path in the right amount of time. And so I just took all that stuff that I learned and put those in a perspective with selling carpet door to door. And, you know, the, the first year we did, like I said, a little over 300, I think 360,000 second year, a million six third year, 3 million, then 5 million, then 8 million, then 11 million, then 13 million, then 18 million, then 20 million. 
And we've been over 20 million ever since. I mean, this last year, even during the pandemic with three months of shutdown, we did close to 25 million in sales. And, um, you know, now I will say that when my son or when by the third year, my girlfriend and I broke up, I was single for a couple months and then I met another girl um, and she was really well organized. She was really sharp with Excel and she was very, very well organized. And she was able to put my craziness into processes and procedures. And I will say that, that those two relationships are, I couldn't have done it without those two because I needed the, I needed, I learned so much from those relationships, even though neither of those two relationships worked out. Now, the second one was great because I had my son with her. And um, when she got pregnant, um, we were only a few months into dating. In fact, I think we, were, we had broken up twice already at that point, you know, and uh, she didn't know if she wanted to go through with it. I remember how much pain I felt in 2006 when my fiance aborted our child and never feeling man enough that I wasn't good enough because right after she aborted our kid, she wound up in another relationship and getting pregnant a few months later with somebody else who also wasn't Muslim and she kept that baby. And so that really killed me because for years I was thinking, man, you know, I was always drunk. I was always this, I was always that. I was never really there. And that's why she didn't have my baby. But, you know, I, I was beating myself up. I felt like half a man. And um, so I told my son's mom, I said, I said, whatever it takes. He said, move in with me. You know, let's, let's, let's do whatever it takes. We'll make this thing work. I give you my life. You know, I'm, please keep this child. And I, I swear to God, I'll, I'll make this right. And, uh, she did. And we, we had the baby. We were, we had a horrible relationship where her and I were very combative, argumentative, you know, and, and, and uh, got to the point where it was, it was getting out of control. And, and my son was, I think a year and a half, two years old when I said, I can't, as much as I want this, nothing feels better than hugging your, your child and, and your co-creator of that child in the same two arms. If you can hug both of them at the same time, there's not, not a more filling feeling in the, in the universe that I, I've ever come across. And as much as I wanted that, I, I knew it would be better for my son if her and I were not together. And, uh, but I said, no matter what, I'll always support you 100%. We didn't have to go through the court, you know, or nothing. I, I bought her a house. You know, I take care of everything for her. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, I bought a house across the street from her for her sister to live in. So that way my son can grow up with his cousins when he's over there because they lived on the other side of the state. Mm. Um, so I definitely, I, I cut my commitment. I promised, you know, that, that I'd make sure that her life is golden as best I could. But, but what that did for me is when I had that, when I heard that child's first breath and I heard that cry and I saw the piss come out of him the first time, you know, he squirt the doctor in the face. Like, I'm like, that's my boy, man. And uh, I'm going to do anything it takes, you know, to, to make sure this, this kid, you know, is safe and protected, you know. Um, and I'm going to give him my time, you know, because I, I when I was young, I, my, my parents loved me and they got me everything that I wanted, but not everything that I needed. And the stuff that I needed was their time. And so, you know, the, the first couple of years of his life, luckily my son's mom, I made enough money with the business that she didn't have to work. So she was able to spend an awful lot of time with him upstairs while I was running the business downstairs. I, the, the business was, was inside our home until probably we were doing 6 million in sales when we had to get a building, um, you know, because I wanted to be close to my son. I wanted to be there with my son's mom, you know? And uh, so my business was down in the basement of this house that we lived in, we bought at that point. And um, I, I wanted to make sure that, that, that they were secure. And so the, in order to give my son the time that he needed, I knew I had to sacrifice the first couple years of his life. You know, I, I didn't get to really see his first step. His mom did upstairs 30 feet away, but I didn't see it happen. 
Um, I didn't hear his first words because I was in the basement working. And I, I dedicated myself from six or seven o'clock in the morning until one o'clock in the morning as much as just like I had those three jobs early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did everything and everything it took because I knew that I needed to scale this business to the point where I can duplicate myself and get a staff in there to run it and operate it in a way that I didn't have to be there every single day. And it could still make money. It could still provide opportunity. It can still you know, take really great care of our customers and our community and do everything else. But at the same time, my, my time is free to be a dad. And um, so it took me two or three years to build that inf- inf- infrastructure. And I had people steal from me. I had all kinds of crap happen along the way. And uh, it, it is what it is, you know, and uh, but we rolled with it. And, you know, for the last three years, I've had freedom. You know, my business is doing 20 million plus a year, even during, during crazy times. I've got really great staff in the place. And most importantly, though, I'm able to spend time with my son. I've got him 50-50, but when I'm with him, I'm with him. You know, right now he's in Zoom upstairs in school, you know, but, but um, you know, he's here and I'm, and I'm with him. The times that he's not here, I'm either at work or I'm on the road traveling, trying to, you know, enjoy my passions the, the time, you know, and, uh, you know, like Hawaii, I love traveling the world. And, um, right. but, uh, but there's been a lot of really, I've been blessed. I'm very, very fortunate that I've been given not just a second or third chance. I've given a couple hundred chances because up until 35 years old, my life was, it was reckless, you know, but, but, but having, um, having hit a bottom that was so hard and so embarrassing and so humiliating, not only to other people, but to, I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror, that pain, you know, unfortunately the best lessons we learn are from pain. Yes. You know, every breakthrough we have in our life is a result of a breakdown, you know, yes. And, yes. And, and, uh, and, and I'm glad that I had such horrible breakdowns. I'm glad I stole that girl's car that night. You know, I want to say sorry. You know, I don't know who to, who to say sorry to, but I'm, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad that I got scared to death that I was going to go to prison and lose my freedom for the next, you know, two to five years if I would have got caught. And I looked around that room while everyone else, I'm glad I stayed sober that night and saw everyone drunk and realized how effed up my life was to realize that I didn't want that anymore, that I had to make change and it couldn't be a little change. I can't, it can't be subtle. It has to be drastic. I need to take massive action at that moment and really commit to it. And uh, I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I surrounded myself with positive people after that. I'm glad I, I, I submerged myself with, you know, with, with Tony Robbins videos or with, you know, or with audiobooks or, you know, the seven habits and the, the secret and all those things and really plowed it into my brain. I'm lucky that I had a, a girl that I started dating that was in a similar situation where she lost a lot of stuff and was on the verge of losing her place. And we were able to connect, you know, if, you know, and, and she was able to teach me how to stay organized and, and really, you know, when I was feeling negative, she would plow positivity into my ears. And I'm glad that I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so lucky. And then my son's mom, you know, even though her and I don't really get along that great, we co-parent wonderfully together. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just very fortunate. And, uh, Joe, I mean, your life story, I mean, seriously, by the way, you're the first guest I haven't spoken since I allowed you to talk because your life story itself needed to be heard. And, you know, only thing that can, that came to my mind, and of course, now I added on Facebook and I saw your pictures with your son and it reminds me a lot because now I have a toddler and uh, I have a very similar situation like you, but not as crazy. I was born in India. I was sexually abused as a kid by cousins. I had an amazing father, amazing mother, but I, me and my mother never really got along and still date. We talk very often. And then same thing on my first wife, uh, ex uh, now, of course, uh, she aborted uh, our child. And I, after that, the same thing, I, I got into like, I was never an alcohol, like I never cared about alcohol, but 
it's just one night switch and then it's like okay you're just feeling your void and then of course now we co-parent uh i have another uh, second marriage and of course we got divorced in 2020 and he's three years old and same thing like you know we were not very good together and we just had to i just decided to break off and like if i if i have to change something if i have to give my son that space and full authentic me i have to make that change and i'm an engineer nine to five that's my main job i'm an engineer for automotive here uh but that's that's how this podcast started because i've been tony robbins fan i mean secret and everything but still even then i failed i then even then i failed through all this darkness like you know it's easy right like you're surrounding people with like oh yeah who is giving you that false and uh, like uh, heavy uh empty uh, alternatives like okay i feel good but it's really it's shallow and uh hearing your story only thing i could think of is like you know i talk this a lot and i'm finishing up a book actually it's gonna come this year man up a different approach for a different era because the same thing that you said like you felt you needed to show who you are to your Yugoslavian friend or to your other friends to feel that important. And that's how we are raised as boys. That's how we are raised as men that show me what you got. Like if you show me that you can do those daredevil things, if you, if you're crying, if you're showing your emotions, uh-uh. we are taking that emotions and putting in gender buckets. So having your listening to you, only thing I could think of is, you know, like a child is a father of man, like William Wordsworth, one of his poems. And, um, I, I wrote that in my book too, is like, you know, how we are treated, that child is always be a father of another man. And the fact that you changed that, you broke that cycle and now you're raising your kid. How old is your kid, by the way? I just turned eight. Eight, okay. So I saw, I saw the video that you posted where he's doing the secret, like reading that secret journal, <laughs> right? And I did the same thing with my son. I have like a high performance journal. I do a stoic journal. I have three journals. I normally do. And then the other day, he's three years old. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start putting together what you do. So I do this this free thing. It's a journal thing. And I just shared with my, I'm like, okay, start using that because our kids also needs to learn from early on what we didn't get more and more positive energy. But the fact that you changed that. And one thing that's really stuck to me, and I want to mention, mention it to finish this episode you mentioned that your Yugoslavian friend and your other friends, when you were doing all the bad stuff, right? That, oh, you got courage. I still feel you had the courage. You were just like exposing it in a different avenue, which is not healthy. And then you shifted that courage and now you did what you did and look where you are. And that's, that's, and creating not just that, like you were creating a legacy and your stories are, it's fascinating. I, I'm just literally, I was just listening to you. I'm like, oh my God, like it's so much inspiration. And I am very honored that you found some time to come on my podcast and share your story. Because I know for a fact, like this podcast, this platform I created is that there are people who don't have resources like us. And we got lucky and I got lucky that I didn't go that route. And I stopped myself again for both of us. I feel like the connecting part is our son. And that's our why, as Tony talks about it, that gives that pain a purpose finally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I feel like this, this whole conversation with you is just, I hope a lot of people, a lot of my audiences who feel that there's, they're in the dump and they, they're no, I talks about peaks and valleys. The, you have to be in those valleys to understand the, of, uh, you know, the other side of it. 
think the deeper, uh, the, deeper the valley, the more it's appreciated. You know, absolutely, more... because you will understand that, okay, I have been there. And also you were able to put yourself in other shoes and not judge so quickly. That's another thing I learned, right? Like, because I had been there, I know how it feels. I know how I can help. Something happened last night that was really, um, I'm really proud of my boy for. He had, um, he's been saving, you know, when he lost his first tooth, I put a hundred dollar bill for the, the, from the tooth fairy. And then after that, he got $20 for his birthday. He got $10 from this or whatever. And he's been saving it up in this piggy bank. And he and I like to play Pokemon Go together. And, and we went through, you know, he had to buy Poke coins for a hundred dollars, you know, so he could, he could buy different outfits for his Pokemon and, you know, whatever. And, uh, came to came to find out that we we uh, my my girlfriend was um it was on her credit card and it like her her card was on my phone or something from a few months ago and she's like oh well shoot that that should have been so like okay we got to pay her back and so my son he goes in his piggy bank and he didn't have enough and he says he had 390 dollars and he got really sad and he got and he goes upstairs and he's crying i said what's the matter dear and we're talking and he goes everything that i had saved it's all gone like poof just like that you know and and I, and I said, yeah, well, that, that happens. And I told them a couple stories in my life where I lost everything. And, and I said, and I'm codependently, I said, I'll put a hundred dollars back in your piggy bank. So you have something to start with. And he goes, no, dad. He goes, he goes, he goes, I want to earn my money. And he goes, <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Really? He said that. And he goes, I don't care about money. I said, what do you care about? He goes, I care about family. And I'm like, oh my God, he hit me so hard with those two things. I was like, oh. this years old. And he said that. It's just, uh, I, but that I, just gives you that that just gives you the confirmation right you are in the right path right and that's like i was thinking myself when i was talking about key performance indicators and 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 benchmarks along the way like you know like as i kept asking myself am i doing a good job with my day with him am i doing enough of this am i not doing enough of this and and i'm i'm questioning myself as a father but those those two things that he said to me really gave me confirmation that the right values in my opinion are being built because one of the fears that i have the biggest fear that i have is enabling him you mm -hmm. know like Parents, parents that come from nothing, you right. know, that have a really hard, you know, what they want to do, what do they want to do? They want to make sure their kids didn't have to go through the crap that they went through. They want to provide to them. They want to give them this. They want to give them that. And I give this kid a lot of shit, man. Mm -hmm. but I, I'm like my biggest fear is, you know, I don't want this kid to overdose on drugs when he's 30 years old because he's a spoiled little rich kid. Right. I want that kid to, I mean, I hate to say it. I love my kid. I don't ever want to see pain on his face, but it's the pain that we learn from. Yes. If, you know, if we help, you know, if we help the metamorphosis, if we help that through its process, we, we kill it, you know, right. we, you know, and, and, and so it's going to hurt me to see him struggle, but I want him to struggle mm -hmm. as that might sound, you know, it's because it, if he doesn't struggle, if he doesn't learn painful lessons and yes. lost and hurt, you know, it's the hurt that made me great at certain things. Right. And if I feel that hurt as deep as I felt it, I never would have changed. Right. And so and I, and I think like you said the right thing, you know, like the same thing happens with me, like, okay, uh, I have, I have a real stable job. I make good money with my engineering. And uh, of course I started a foundation uh, last year, like literally in December. And so literally I was kind of telling him that, you know, like for every year for your birthday, which is 22nd December, uh, once the foundation starts running uh, this year, what I want to do, Rihan, like, you know, his name is Rihan. And I'm like, I want you to start on your birthday you will get a gift, but then we will do something for others. So I was trying to get him to, because I want him to understand the same thing as you. Like, I rather have him go through a little bit of pain now to understand and put himself on other shoes that are not that resourceful and have not, 
and not taking everything for granted than go through the really bad side of it, like harsher pain, I guess, if that's, mm. is a, you know, like the pain that you and I both went through in different levels, I'd rather have him go through and guide him through that. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, I mean, you are absolutely right because enabling it, like it's, it's very easy, right? Like, because we had gone through it, we understand and we all, it's a conscious cycle. So how do we break that cycle to actually give them that tools that we learned later in life? So, so yeah, I mean, it's amazing how your, how your kid wants to earn it. So, <laughs> so that means, you know, you, you're in the right track. I'm really thankful for the time when I was 19 years old and, and at Berkshire Medical Center when I had pneumonia and I was in the hospital, that my mom got on the phone and said, by me talking to you, it's not going to make your pneumonia go, go away. And she hung up the phone on me. And as hard and, and as cruel as that might have sounded, my mom, I'm most proud of her because she was so codependent with me growing up that she had enough balls right there to say that. Her son was suffering in the hospital and she couldn't see him. And she hung up the phone on me. It was the best thing she ever did for me. Mm -hmm. Best thing she ever did for me. You know that Johnny Cash song about Boy Named Sue? Have you ever heard that song? No. This guy knew he was, he had a kid and he knew his, 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 uh, he knew that he wasn't going to be around for his kid. So he named the kid Sue instead of Jim or Bob or Steve or whatever it may be. And this kid got picked on, called a girl, called all these things, beat up and stuff. And he became the toughest kid in the, in the, and he became tough and callous. And then he finally met his dad when he was older, grown up. And he says, ah, you named me Sue and I'm going to kick your ass for it. You were never there. And he said, the thing I did for you was I named you Sue and that made you strong. And I'm so glad that my mom made me strong by hanging the phone up on me that day when I needed her the most, because it, it gave me the calluses that I need. It gave me the, it made me realize that no one's going to save me, but me. And yeah. I tell you what, if she wouldn't have done that, if she would have enabled me at that point at 19 years old and came to my rescue, I would have never had those three jobs. I never would have had what it takes to get on my feet, you know, be able to, you know, buy my first car, be able to get my first room, be able to get my first apartment, be able to buy my first house. And if I wouldn't have had those teachings from my late teens, early twenties, that I had to be forced to make it on my own, then I don't know if I would have had the balls to do it when I was 35 and life really crashed down on me. Five. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had nothing. I had no driver's license. I had no job. I had no car, no roof, except for this one that we're squatting in with no heat. You know, nobody would hire me. The economy was in the toilet. There was no, I had no chance. But I, but because of what my mom did for me when I was 19, that might've seemed cruel and painful at the time. All right. It gave me the courage to be, to the courage as well as the, um, I guess the, the awareness to look at what resources did I have. Mm -hmm. Resources, you know, were very minimal, but I, but I was able to put them together and put them and put a formula together that worked for me to get me out of that real deep hole that I was in into something that turned into be something awesome. Yeah, Tony talks about it all the time. Like, don't create excuses. We all have resources. How resourceful are you? Like, you will figure it out when your back's against the wall, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's crazy. Like, we don't think about it. And when we really put all our efforts, all our mind and get that negative voices out of our head and really start taking small details. And as you said, like, you know, Stephen Covey talks about it, like mission statement, vision statement, everything. That's so much, just all of it. And when you're surrounding yourself with these things all day long, it's hard to, it's hard not to uh, go to your fullest potential. And someone's fullest potential just might be, you know, just be a good parent and that's fine. 
but that and that the way you structured it and like it's actually spilling in in your personal life and that becomes your why and now that's also showing that motivation in your professional life in your business it's just all all a circle i'm learning every day <laughs> oh it is it is joe i don't want to uh, this is like over one yeah, hour and it's <laughs> thanks no 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 thanks for you being so generous of your time i know you're a busy person and thanks really for you know replying to me because when i when i saw you i'm like hold on a minute yes i do know him because i did hear his story a little bit uh so thank you so much it's such an honor for you to have on my podcast and share your story and really just get me more inspired and do more uh in this year too so and Follow me on uh, Instagram. We'll talk there or else uh, I started another thing called the Glove MI, supporting local businesses. Uh, okay. know, so maybe some more networking. So Absolutely, but. we will. Okay. Joe, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. And we will see you again sometime in some form, probably do some live and all that. So guys, this is the end of this episode. Hopefully you guys learned a lot of wisdom and heard Joe's stories and how he was in trials and tribulations and how just sheer will and sheer motivation, consistency and learning and keeping your mind open for future opportunities and purpose and never doubt yourself. So please remember you're not alone. Reach out, DM me on Instagram, DM me on Facebook if you ever need help. Because remember, you are just not never alone. There are people that have done it. You can do it too. Take care. God bless. I'll see you in another episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dads and Deadlifts. And I hope you are as excited as I am learning from our guest today on the specific topic. Please subscribe, share, and leave a comment and tag Dads and Deadlifts on Instagram and Facebook with your experience of today's episode. Because remember, your one share might save someone from feeling alone and provide them the tools they can incorporate in their daily lives. Let's each of us do our part in helping men around the world. You can personally message me on my Facebook page or Instagram page, Dads and Deadlifts, if you want your story to be shared on the podcast, or if you just feel alone and want someone to reach out to. Always remember, you are not alone. All you got to do is reach out, and I am rooting for you. Until next week, your host Rish signing off. I will see you next week with another brand new episode.